0: We're going to start a series this week um, on the Holy Spirit. Many years ago, I wrote a little booklet by Martin Lloyd-Jones called Authority. The authority of God, the authority of Scripture, and then the authority of the Holy Spirit. And in the section on the authority of the Holy Spirit, he talks about how um, Bible-believing Christians today largely avoid the Holy Spirit. that He's a dead member of the Trinity. In different parts of the country, you have different sins that that part of the country tends towards. And in this part of the country, one of the sins of the church is the sins of what what is variously called oneness Pentecostalism. Not all Pentecostalism is uh, oneness, but there is a branch of Pentecostalism which focuses exclusively on Jesus Christ and which uh, there's one pastor in town here who, when I asked him to say whether he believed in the personhood of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, what he said was no. He said those are three ways that God reveals himself to us, but they're not persons. And the evangelical world, which if you've come to this church through the internet, you know that we say that we're reformed and evangelical. The evangelical world largely lives like one in those Pentecostals, where um, we focus on Jesus Christ and sometimes on God the Father... But the father's scary and he's the Old Testament and he shakes mountains. And so even though we we pray to God as father often, we really don't like to think of God the father as much as Jesus. Because as my father said to me, preach on Jesus. The people love Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is tender. He's meek and gentle of heart. We will find rest for our souls. He tells us to come to him, all those who are weak, weak and heavy laden, and we will find rest for our souls. And then we move over to the Holy Spirit. And if we've been involved in charismatic movements or Pentecostalism of some sort, you know, we we, we do have a recognition that we need the Holy Spirit. We're intellectually aware that the Holy Spirit applies the work of God to us as individuals. But really, we are oneness Pentecostals as evangelicals. It's Jesus. And we don't have an appreciation for the Holy Spirit. And we don't really believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. And uh, I want to make the case this morning that this is evident in a number of ways, but I want to wait until the end of the sermon to keep making the case. Be sensitive, though, as we preach the next few weeks, to the authority and the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you would this morning, please turn to John chapter 16, where we'll pick up this study of the Holy Spirit. John chapter 16, beginning with verse 1. If you know the book of the gospel of John at all you know that John has what's called the upper room discourse this is the long teaching that Jesus did in the upper room with his disciples around the last supper all right and if you look at the surrounding chapters to John chapter 16 you'll see some of the themes that he struck during this Upper Room Sermon or discourse. You'll see that the Lord suppers chapter 13, then verse 21, the heading is Jesus predicts his betrayal. Then chapter 14, Jesus comforts his disciples. And if you've been at a, if, if you've been at a funeral, most likely you've heard a sermon from John chapter 14, Uh, You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions or dwelling places. I go to prepare a place for you. I will come again that where I am there you may be also. Then in verse 16 of chapter 14, Jesus begins to speak on the work of the Holy Spirit. Let me read the first two verses there. Jesus says I will ask the father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. So the context is Jesus saying I'm gonna leave. I'm gonna go. He's been telling them he's gonna die. I'm gonna leave. I'm gonna die. I'm gonna be crucified. I'm gonna go. And now he says I will ask the father and he will give you another helper. So the context is I have helped you but you will be given another helper that he may be with you forever. In other words someone that won't leave. And he says that is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. So he opens up the work of the Holy Spirit. Then in verse uh, chapter 15, he talks about abiding in him as the vine. Then he talks about the disciples relationship one to another. And then he gives a warning, and then he promises the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to pick up, and then he has the high priestly prayer of chapter 17. And then, chapter 18, the heading is Judas betrays Jesus. So this is the final teaching time, message, sermon of Jesus to his disciples. And then Judas betrays him. Now, what does he find important to say to the disciples at this time? Well, Let's read the first 15 verses of John chapter 16. Picking up in the middle of this time of teaching, Jesus says to them, These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. But these things I have spoken to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now but when he the spirit of truth comes he will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak on his own initiative but whatever he hears he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come he will glorify me for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you all things that the father has are mine therefore i said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you and then let's read verse 16 a little while and you will no longer see me and again a little while and you will see me. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Now, we've seen what the setting of the passage that we just read is, that it's the upper room discourse, teaching, sermon, and that the time is getting close for the departure of Jesus Christ. And we see that Jesus says to them, uh, none of you are asking where you're going. And then verse 6, but because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Now, it's easy for us to understand this. Yesterday, I got a letter from the president of Reformed uh, Theological Seminary, or whatever it's called up in Pittsburgh, the uh, the uh, Reformed Presbyterian uh, a cappella-salter-only seminary. And the president there was talking about the death of what, I skimmed it, what I take to be his father. And he was saying that, Um, obviously it was a time of sadness but it was also a time of great uh, sense of God doing what is right for his dad 90 or 92 I forget how old he was and we think about separation from our father or from our mother we think about the separation that we have from husbands and wives where they die and they pass on to the world to come and It is often a very, very, very difficult burden to bear. It's very, very sad. Uh, If a couple has had a good marriage, and the husband or wife dies, it helps to think of God saying, "The two shall become one," and thinking of the the couple being one body and being ripped right down the middle, and one's left and the other goes. Uh, It took my mother months and months and months before she could bear to go to church after dad died. Why? Well, because the pain of sitting in church without my dad next to her. Now, whatever the pain is that we've experienced in the death of a loved one, father, mother, son, daughter, think of the pain of the disciples with the departure of Jesus Christ. Now, we can go for the shock and awe things, And what are they? Well, the fact that everywhere he went, he did things that no man had ever done. He made the blind able to see. He made the deaf able to hear. He healed the lame. He fed the 5,000. He stilled the storms. He cast out demons. He raised the dead. So you think of His shock and awe campaign, or rather the shock and awe campaign of his father placing his approval on his son. And this is what all these miracles represented. And you just think how accustomed the disciples and everybody else came to seeing all the evil in the world whooped up on by Jesus. And that would be no small thing. Imagine if we could simply go to Jesus and Bob would be able to dance You know, imagine if we could go to Jesus and the child that has died, uh, the only son of his mother is raised from the dead. Lazarus walks out of the tomb and doesn't smell. So for Jesus to leave takes all that stuff and it's gone. Then you take the things that matter even more and that is what? That is the fact that every word that comes out of him is absolute truth. That Jesus never lies and he never massages your ego. You never feel like he's flattering you. That he diagnoses you properly, your heart. He gets right to the heart of things. He says things like, you have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that any man that looks on a woman with lust in his eyes has committed adultery. And every man goes, finally, he got me right. I'll never forget when Jimmy Carter in the pages of Playboy talked about his battle with the lust of his eyes and how many times he committed adultery with his eyes. You can think what you want of Jimmy Carter, but I was so proud of that man. And no, I didn't read it in Playboy. <laughs> And so Jesus not only did the miracles and showed that he was the creator of this world. What would, all of, the, what would have all of the evolutionary biologists and cosmologists who are agnostics or atheists have said when they were around Jesus? And they saw him calm a storm. Where does that come from? Was that evolutionary? Where did that authority come from? Might have it have occurred to them that this is the one who created all things? Might it have occurred to them when they saw him raise a man from the dead that it is he that has made us and not we ourselves. And so this is Jesus. And then he speaks truth, but it's even beyond that. It's that he's unbelievably lovable. (laughs) Did you ever think about that? Why do you think Mary and Martha were there very early in the morning? Why do you think that a bunch of women supported him out of the wealth of their household during his itinerant ministry? Do you ever think that Jesus was a very, very lovable man? Do you know if you had seen him cleansing the temple with a whip, you would have loved him. Unless that is you had one of the little exhibits, one of the little booths, and then maybe you resented him. But if you were his disciples, the mass that followed him, you would have found him. And then think of the disciples themselves, the twelve. The Son of Man had no place to lay his head, and they were with him at every point. And so their hearts had completely gone gaga for Jesus. So much so that the Apostle Peter, when he was told that he would betray Jesus, he swore up one side and down the other he'd never betray Jesus. Never. Never. And why? Well, you know why it is. It's because, Paul, it's because Peter was so completely in love with Jesus. You remember that scene where Jesus is going up to Jerusalem and all the tension is building and everybody feels like it's going to happen. This is it, dudes. And then they say, well, all right, let's go up with him and die with him. Remember that? They loved him. So now Jesus says, I'm leaving. And it would have hit them like a ton of bricks. It would have devastated them. I mean, for one thing, just think of the hostility that there was to Jesus at this time. And the minute the lightning rod leaves and is crucified, do you think that the lightning's going to stop? No, it's going to turn to the disciples and the disciples are going to be the ones that begin to get hit, right? Does this make sense to you? And so in a real sense, they're going to have foreboding about the fact that Jesus is going to be gone and the hostility of the scribes and Pharisees and religious leaders is going to turn on them. Now, in that context, it is that Jesus says this, I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asked me where are you going, but because i said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart, but, verse 7, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. Now, this is the single most important statement in Scripture for us to understand the value and the work of the Holy Spirit. Whatever that work is, it is advantageous that Jesus leaves so that the Holy Spirit comes. It is to your advantage that I leave so that the Holy Spirit and his ministry will come. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, does this mean that the Holy Spirit was never there before? No, it doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit was not at work, was not present prior to this. But it does mean that in some way that Scripture doesn't make clear to us, the Holy Spirit came in power following Christ's ascension in a way that he had not been there in power before. And of course, what you see immediately is the day of Pentecost, when you see Peter preaching and you see the power of the Holy Spirit. We'll get into that a little bit more in a second. And so Jesus says, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, so it's good that Jesus goes so that the Holy Spirit will come. If he didn't go, he wouldn't come. But if he does go, he will come. And now Jesus begins to open why that's good. He says, and he, when he comes, will what? Will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. I'm going to send you the comforter. It's good that I go because then he can come. If I didn't go, he couldn't come. When he comes, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And then he opens up sin a little, opens up verse 10, righteousness a little, opens up verse 11, judgment a little. And then he says, verse 12, I have many more things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, so sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now we jump forward and we get a little more. Sin, righteousness, and judgment is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But the ministry of the Holy Spirit is also, verse 13, when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will what? He will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He will guide you into all truth. And then verse 14, what? He will glorify me for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. So this is a summary of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He convicts the world and of us of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. He guides us into all truth, and he glorifies Jesus Christ. Now, a little warning about uh, some aspects of the charismatic movement that I have been involved with, and that is uh, having discovered something, you tend to, to, to shake it until it falls apart. Sin and righteousness and judgment, all truth and glorifying Jesus Christ. And what I was saying is in some parts of uh, the church that have discovered the ministry of the Holy Spirit and believe in it, they tend to emphasize the Holy Spirit in a way that doesn't give glory to Jesus Christ. Remember, the Holy Spirit gives glory to Jesus Christ. He doesn't exist to bring himself glory. That's not to say it's wrong to glorify the Holy Spirit. But remember, he, Jesus, says that he will direct you. He will direct you through himself to give glory to Jesus Christ. Now, let's come back then to these other things. Let's, we will be going on for a number of weeks on them. But let's just say something about starting at the end, he'll glorify Christ. Then in the middle, he will guide us into all truth. Um, Is truth something that we care about and that we love? Truth. If you were a physician who specialized in getting people to lose weight, would you want to work in America? Well, on one hand, yes, and on the other hand, no. Right? Both yes and no. Yes, and there's a lot of work to be done. Take me, for example. But no, in that probably the people that have a lot of weight don't really want the truth about their weight, right? Right? Now, what, what if the truth is not about weight, but the truth is about the condition of your heart? Would you want to work in America? <laughs> well, yes, In that there's a lot of work to be done in America, right? About the condition of our hearts, right? Now, I'm not talking about cardiology. I'm talking about, the heart being the placeholder for all that is spiritual, moral, ethical, divine, corrupt in us. A lot of work to do in America, but would Americans want us want their hearts to be worked on? The Holy Spirit guides us into all truth as we work our way back. Let me ask, do you love truth? What's the motto of Harvard? What's the motto of Indiana University. Speak up. So what is it? Generally, we don't speak in Latin. It is a Latin phrase, right? Light and truth. So we're in a community where all of the tax dollars of the, United, of, of the state of Indiana are poured into so that we will discover light and truth, right? Don't be cynical. It's been a lot of money paid for your tuition. So why did he laugh? Is it because he's young and immature? No, it's because he has not learned to lie. And that's really what is an awful lot of our world, is our world teaches us that the older you get, the more sophisticated we do get in lying. And so uh, when it comes to truth, we can look at universities and colleges today and say that an awful lot of what goes on there is actually propaganda, and it's not truth. So what, am I just beating up on IU because I'm out here on the west side? No. What about the church? If any place should have truth at its center, it should be the church. And so do churches exist to give you the truth? No. Churches exist to protect you from the truth. You say, how could you be so cynical? Well, because generally we don't like the truth. That's why it is the ministry of the Holy Spirit to give us truth. If it were something that could be humanly given to us, if it were simply an A plus B equals C, if it were, uh, you know, like putting up a two by four, if it were something as simple as, you know, driving the car from here across town, then you wouldn't need the Holy Spirit to do it. You have the car, you have the foot, you have the key, you have the gas, you drive, you've got the roads, you drive, but the Holy Spirit leads us into all truth. And every single institution that is associated with this fallen world, whether it is the church or it's a university with a motto like that, Light and Truth, or whether it is a doctor's office, is corrupted because we hate truth. And so doctors, one of their principal skills is learning how to give truth in such a way that you love them for it. Which means many doctors don't give you truth. There's a doctor in town here who exists to give you drugs legally. All right? If you're a drug addict, not if you have back pain. Now, he does prescribe that too. But if you're a drug addict, you know you can go to this man, and he will give you legal drugs legally so that you can be a drug addict. Now, is that doctor helping you? I guess it depends on whether you're a libertarian or not, which I'm not. I don't think it's good to have legal drugs. I don't think it's good for doctors to do it. But that doesn't matter. The point is, doctors are supposed to tell us the truth. They're supposed to never do any harm. That's their first principle. And here's a doctor prescribing. Now, we can all say, well, that guy's awful. But the fact is, doctors, the fact is elders, the fact is preachers, the fact is mothers and fathers lie to us all the time. They lie about the consequences of our sin. My son was telling me recently of an apology he heard from a young man to another young man. who He had lost his temper with this other young man in in, in a, in a game. And so this young man had to apologize to the other young man for what he had done in the game when he lost his temper. And so the young man, being still impressionable, actually gave a sincere apology and didn't excuse himself. And then my son said, but what was interesting was immediately the father did what? The father said, but so-and-so did such-and-such, and and my son such-and-such, and so-and-so, and 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 completely made a shambles of his son apology. Truth. Where's truth? Last time you apologized to your wife, did you say, honey, I'm sorry? But... So we have the ministry of the Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth. Do we have enough self-awareness and humility to realize that that's a hard work the Holy Spirit has to do? Do we? Does your wife like speaking truth to you? What time of the year have you set aside where she is allowed to approach you with truth? Notice I didn't say month or week or day. Which day of the year, one day a year, is she allowed to speak truth to you? We don't like truth. And so the Holy Spirit has this job. Now let's move back to the beginning. He he glorifies Jesus Christ. He guides us into all truth. He leads us into knowing all truth. And he convicts the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Now, what does it mean to say that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment? Well, right away we run into this this issue of truth, don't we? Because to become convicted of sin is not something that uh, generally we like. And yet here we have right at the beginning Jesus saying that it's good that he leaves so that the Holy Spirit will come. And the first thing he says, the Holy Spirit will come, which should make us happy he's leaving, is that he convicts us of sin. Now, I want to do something here because it's one thing for us to hear intellectually Jesus is leaving. The Holy Spirit is going to come. And it's good that he comes. He convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. It's another thing to see a living example of this work of the Holy Spirit. And then to say it was good that Jesus left so that the Holy Spirit would come so that this would happen. Now let's look at the example. The day of Pentecost. We all know that's when the Holy Spirit came in power. So let's turn there to the account of the day of Pentecost. And it's found in Acts chapter 2. And there we have an account of the coming of the Holy Spirit. Tongues of fire on the heads, and then Peter begins to preach, right? And so we can see what it means to be convicted of sin, righteousness, and judgment. All right? So let's look at it. When the day of Pentecost, verse 1, had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them, and they were all what? Filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Then it goes on and talks about how people heard in their own language. Some thought they were drunk. Finally, Peter begins to speak, verse 14, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to the men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. Then verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your holy. One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David... Who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, I'm not going to take time to go through all the quotes of the Old Testament, which, if you have a Bible like mine, are in small caps on the text. Um, but I do want to note the major points of what's going on here and what you see here is the Holy Spirit's work through the mouth of Peter convicting the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment now where is the sin? well look at the response of the people now when they heard this they were pierced to the heart why were they pierced to the heart? because they were convicted of sin the Holy Spirit had done his work And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? These are the words, this is the question of those who have been convicted of sin. Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them what? Repent. Again, repent is a command that you give to people who are convicted of sin. Repent. All right? And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for what? For the forgiveness of your sins. And so... The response of the people to the first sermon when the Holy Spirit came, their response was to come under conviction of sin to ask what to do, and everything he tells them to do is aimed at the sin that they have on their hearts. All right? They're convicted of sin, they come to him with it, and that's what's supposed to happen when the Holy Spirit comes out in power. All right? Verse 40, and with many other words, so in other words, this isn't the whole sermon we have here, but this is just a representative sampling of that sermon on that day. And the sermon went on after they came to him and said, what must we do? He went on, and what did he go on doing? Well, they already said, what are we to do? They were already convicted of sin. But what does he go on and do? Well, the summary, if you look at your Bibles, it says, with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, present participle. It goes on and on, kept on exhorting them, saying what? Be saved from this perverse generation. And so then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day were added 3,000 souls. He, when he comes, will convict the world of sin. Are they convicted of sin when the Holy Spirit comes? Yes, they are. Second, of righteousness. Now, what is the righteousness that the Holy Spirit convicts us of? Well, the righteousness is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's not ours. We're convicted of sin. So if he convicts of righteousness, it must be something external to us. It is Jesus Christ. So you say, where does the righteousness of Christ come in this sermon? Well, look back with with me at it. It says what? If you look at verse 22... Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves. know. this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death, but God raised him up again. So the Holy Spirit is convicting them not only of their sin, because that would be hopeless, that would be suicidal, but of the righteousness of Christ. First, God made the righteousness of his son clear by the shock and awe campaign. All his miracles, everything he did, was making it clear to everybody watching, God approves of this man. And then if you didn't have... Clarity in your brain about it when the wickedness of our hearts crucifies Christ, then God raises him from the dead. And so, when he's raised from the dead, it's clear he's righteous because God vindicated him. This is why you won't be raised from the dead because God doesn't want your mother thinking you're as good as she thinks you are, you will decay. You will be eaten by worms. And that's what you deserve. And if it's what you deserve, it's much more so what I deserve. We are flesh. We are dust. That's why I so much don't like today the way that funerals are held. Ah, oh. And you watch the movies from the old days and your heart just goes, yes! This is why when my dad died, I said to the funeral director, I want to put the dirt on his coffin. I don't want him at Mayo dying with the doctors, the only one seeing him dying. And then we go to the funeral home, and the only people that see him, you know, and then we go to the grave. and The only people that see him, I want to put the dust on his coffin. <laughs> what does that have to do with this? I want to confess, because it's necessary for my soul who loved my father, I want to confess that my father was just a man and that he returns to dust. Why? Because after he died, I was enticed to idolize him and to, and to make him my God and to forget that he... Was only a slight image of God the Father, from whom all fatherhood gets its name, and so when you die, and they put dirt on top of you, and praise God, the 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 the, uh, the tomb digger, whatever they call them, burial men. As I was walking away from the grave, one of them came up behind me and tapped me on the shoulder, and he said to me, "Hey," he said, "We heard that you wanted to start burying your dad," and I said, "Yes." And they said, well, come on back. I'd been told it was against the rules of the union to do this. But they brought me back to the grave, and they had a little five-gallon white bucket filled with dirt, and they said, you can start. And so I dumped dust on my father's body. And from dust we come, and to dust we'll go. Who's righteous? Not my father, not my daddy. Not you. Jesus. And so he convicts the world of sin. He convicts the world of righteousness. Not ours, Jesus. And then what? Judgment. The conflict's set up perfectly. Over here we got sin, over here we have righteousness. And facing us is judgment. Save yourselves from this perverse generation. What is that? Warning. He is appointed a day when all men will stand before him and give account for every idle word, let alone every deed. If you think that this was how you dealt with a very earthy people, namely the Hebrews, who had a lot of laws about what they would and wouldn't need, referred to the Samaritans and others as goyim, If you were tempted to think that in a more sophisticated postmodern day, that you would have to engage the narrative. If you were an emergent type and thought that we need new techniques for new times, And I were to tell you that we have in Scripture an account of this gospel and the work of this Holy Spirit coming to Athens. What would you be tempted to think that work would be done like in Athens? Huh? It would have to massage their egos because they had very large egos, didn't they? And if I were to tell you that if we were to come to Oxford or Cambridge or Harvard, and adapt the narrative to the context, to contextualize the gospel. Would the gospel at Harvard or at Cambridge or at Duke, would the gospel be the Holy Spirit convicting the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment? Do you think that the Apostle Paul, when he went into Athens in the Areopagus, had his message centered on sin and righteousness and judgment? Do you think that today, when you bring a soul who is lost in their sin, without hope in this world, do you think when you bring that soul to church, that that soul should be given the ministry of the Holy Spirit? Do you have faith in the work of the Holy Spirit? Or have we become so sophisticated, so educated, so postmodern, so emergent, so decadent, that no longer do we want the ministry of the Holy Spirit? You know, I'm old enough now to be able to look backwards and not just forwards. And looking backwards has its advantages one of the advantages is I can remember watching Willow Creek blossom. That was my home county, DuPage County. I remember looking at all the fancy buildings they were building and and seeing diagrams of the people they had out in their parking lots. And I remember my mother being in Bible studies with women from Wayne who all went to Willow Creek because it was the happening place. And people from Wayne do the happening thing. And they have horses. That's where I grew up, all right? And I remember looking at Willow Creek, and then the pastor that I worked with began to go to their seminars, and, and their materials began to fill my inbox. And, and the U.S. Postal Service was weighted down with all the things from Willow Creek telling us what we needed to do. And I admit to you, I absolutely hated it. I hated it, and a lot of it was jealousy, I was stuck in a rural, little, small-town community where people pulled on the udders of cows for a living. And I wasn't Bill Hybels. But listen, don't get me wrong. That's not why I hated it. I struggled with that. That was sin. The reason I hated it was that Willow Creek stood for everything that was turning away from the witness of the Holy Spirit and convicting the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment. What Willow Creek stood for was a very sophisticated corporate application to the church of all of the things we've learned in marketing, in, in managerial skills, and all these other things. And if you went to their seminars, what you learned were things that you would learn on the shelf from the business management advice column of Borders. It doesn't mean that the gospel wasn't there. But the things they were saying they had to teach the church were things that had to do with management, with marketing, with uh, logistics, with the use of money, with being, if I can sum it up, being hep dudes with an MBA. Slick. Now, Willow Creek has done a study. I don't know how it ever got through their approval. But they've done a study of the effectiveness of their techniques. And what they've done is they've confessed to their church and to the whole country that what they've been doing is, is, is absolutely wrong. And that the things they thought were effective, in fact, aren't. And one of the principal things they're confessing is that they have not pushed their people to study the Bible enough. Now, here's the ironic thing. So now everybody is flocking after Willow Creek as, as Willow Creek says, we're now going to start from scratch and do a new thing, and everybody wants to know what the new thing Willow Creek is going to do. <laughs> I think, okay, like, okay, like they didn't get it right once, so what, you know? Because they say they didn't get it right, does that give them leadership so that we should follow them as they get it right the second time? Now, listen, everybody gets on my case when I mention another church. This church has more than enough errors to go around. This, this church, okay? We've done a lot of things that are stupid. If you want to know some of them, go to the elders. They'll tell you. I'll tell you. So the issue isn't that Willow Creek has not done anything right and only does wrong things. But the issue is Willow Creek does stand as a placeholder in our country for the loss of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We, when we looked at Willow Creek, did not trust in the ministry of the Holy Spirit to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, but we stood and bowed down to the altar of corporate success and management styles and money. Everything that DuPage County had, and I knew a lot of the reason Willow Creek was growing, was because DuPage County was the most happening real estate in the country at the time. The, the property values were going through the roof. It's Naperville. Anybody ever heard of Naperville? High tech? Okay? And somehow a church there is growing. And that makes Bill Hybels a guru. What does this have to do with the Holy Spirit? Come on. What does this have to do with the Holy Spirit? Can you see that if we go back to the... Word of God, and we see that Jesus says it's good that I go, so that, you know, (laughs) what what? So that we get new management technique, new marketing techniques, so that we learn how to use PageMaker and 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 InDesign in such a way that it doesn't make us look so stodgy, huh? We have a hip dude bass player with long bleached blonde hair. I do believe in the work of the Holy Spirit. And I believe in the work of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit has convicted me of sin. And because he hasn't stopped. And because he's also convicted me that Jesus Christ is righteous. And because he's given me faith in Jesus Christ. Not myself, but him. And because I know that he has appointed a day when the judgment will come. And that then, no matter how much you hate conviction of sin, and no matter how much you hate Jesus Christ, you will bow before him. And I'm smart enough to know that I can't convince you of any of that, that that's the Holy Spirit. But I'll be hanged if I'm going to come here Sunday morning and protect you from the Holy Spirit. And if you want a church that will protect you from the Holy Spirit, go somewhere else. We don't do that. And when I start to do it, our elders will fire me. And when one elder tries to do it in an elders meeting, the rest of us jump on him. And when we don't, that's when you want to find another church. Do you understand this? Do you understand that most religion today is a massive effort at stroking your ego and flattering you? And that most preachers in their sermons make a great show without any danger? And that they exist to protect you from the Holy Spirit? Some of you, it's been years since you have been convicted of sin in any sermon in your church. What's the point? You know, if I want to be flattered, I could go to the Hyundai dealer. (laughs) You know, God is God. I am not God. I have no right to change his message. I have no right to silence his Holy Spirit. And this is a place where you can't survive unless you are willing to not just embrace justification, but sanctification. In other words, you come to Christ on your knees, confessing your sin, and then you are a part of the great, uh, the great host that is pilgriming to heaven and is day by day by day by day being convicted of sin and righteousness and judgment. And you say, "Oh no, no, no! That's not what Christians are all about. What Christians are all about is being born again, and then after that, they have no fear. There is therefore no condemnation to those that are in Christ." And I say. You've got half of it. You've got justification. Whatever happened to sanctification? Why is it that anybody that speaks of holiness in the PCA is accused of being a pietist? Whatever happened to sanctification? So, like, you have to go through the Holy Spirit to become a Christian, but then after you become a Christian, you're done with the Holy Spirit. No. We're not done with the Holy Spirit until we're in heaven, and then we're glorified. Christians believe three things with regard to sin. Justification that it will not... Come on, that it will not condemn. Sanctification that it will not reign. And glorification that it will not be... Justification that it will not condemn, sanctification that it will not reign, glorification that it will not be. And so Jesus says it's good that he leaves. He tells us the ministry of the Spirit. He tells us it'll glorify me. He tells us it'll lead you into all truth. He tells us that it'll convict you of sin and righteousness and judgment. So, do you believe in the ministry of the Holy Spirit? Do you love it? This last week I had the privilege of having a young man at this church come to me and confess a very serious sin that he had been involved with with someone else for three years. Happens all the time. And because I was a good evangelical preacher, I said to him, son, sin that grace may abound. Don't guilt trip yourself. We all fall. (laughs) You know, claim your victory in Jesus Christ. Don't doubt that you're a Christian. Whatever you do, don't doubt. Is that what I did? No. I sat there with my mouth shut while he cried. And when he got done crying and confessing his sin, I said, you know, this is beautiful. There's nothing I'd rather do than be here right now. And this is joyful. Joyful. Here's a young man crying. Why is it joyful? It's joyful because his heart is under the ministry of the Holy Spirit. What do I exist to but to see your heart under the ministry of the Holy Spirit? I live for that. And so this is a place where if you believe in the Holy Spirit, you may confess sin. You may hear others' confessions of sin. And then you may say what I had the privilege of saying to him, which is, Go, God has forgiven you. You bear it no more. As far as the east is from the west. One final thing and I'll be done, I promise. You know that when the apostle peter was preaching on the day of pentecost you know that he was very very bold in what he said because he said you killed him and i want to ask you a question if you hadn't read the story of pentecost so that you knew thousands believed that day Would you have wanted the Apostle Peter to say you killed him to the people that you had brought to hear the evangelistic message? In other words, do you believe in the work of the Holy Spirit? Do you believe in the work of the Holy Spirit? Do you believe that people who come here will be saved by the power of the Holy Spirit? Or do you think people that come here will become a part of this church because people use deodorant? And the preacher does too. In other words, he doesn't make an ass of himself. And he doesn't act like he really believes it. He he puts on a good show that has spiritual themes. What do you really believe about the work of the Holy Spirit when the Word of God is preached here? Do you believe that I will become, in the sight of everyone, a living fool if the Holy Spirit doesn't work? And so, really... Whether or not people are saved under the preaching of the word is not a function of how well I do my job, is it? That that has something to do with it, right? I have to open my mouth and say something. But it really is not me. It is the Holy Spirit. And I wonder, do you believe in the work of the Holy Spirit? Is it evident to you that because you... We're convicted of sin and righteousness and judgment that anybody can be. <laughs> Do you get my point? If God dealt with a nutcase like me and broke me, after me, everybody else is easy. When he comes, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment. I just encourage you all, dive into the pool. It looks like it's cold, but it's the perfect temperature for your comfort. The minute pride dies, joy comes. Embrace his conviction. Jump in. Let's pray.